Hey everybody, this is Tyler Smith and this is More Than One Lesson. This is a, a mini-sode number 20. Uh, there was, uh, over the last couple of weeks, I think we took a, a short break from being on format. So the last mini-sode you can listen to me talk about my weird relationship to the film Holy Motors. And then, not I'm sorry to start on a uh, down note, but uh, there's also a recent, not an official Minnesota or anything, but just a recent thing in which I talk about uh, Will Gray, who uh, I'm sure many of you at this point have heard uh, uh, passed away recently. So we're very sorry to hear about that. So for those of you that pray, please keep uh, Will's wife, Angie, in mind. So, all right. I'm sorry to. It, I'm sure it seems very callous to me to move on from that, but uh, but we're going to do that. So, all right. Uh, back on format, we're going to be discussing my fifth favorite movie of all time, Josh Long. That's me. I'm here. We are halfway there. Halfway there. I can see the end. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> That makes this What's, sound bad. Yeah, it's not. I a thought tunnel. you were enjoying these. I can see the darkness at the end of the. There we go. I don't the know. ever encroaching darkness. Yeah, it's getting closer. Would you go as far as say you see a darkness, and 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 then I see a darkness. Nice. That's a Bonnie Prince Billy or a Will <laughs> Oldham song. Um, yeah. Okay. I know. I know. You all came here for your Bonnie Prince Billy references. That's why I started the show. Yeah. There's at least eight in each episode. Listen close. Uh, all right. So before we get into it, I wanted to make a dumb. Dumb announcement. So... I can't wait. Oh, I bet you can't. All right, everybody. So on the last uh, proper episode, you may recall that Josh misspoke. And he meant to say fascinating. Or... Or... He meant to say fantastic. One of those two things is what I meant to say. Yes. But what he wound up saying was fantasinating. And so, uh, I believe I said a little joke at the time about uh, that should be a shirt. And guess what, everybody? It's a shirt. But that's not all. So, if you go to <laughs> morethanonelesson.com and you click on the store uh, and, and go to official MTOL merch, uh, where you can find all manner of uh, t-shirts and uh, sweatshirts and various other things uh, with the More Than One Lesson logo and, uh, and other such things, uh, there is also... Now, some new, uh, some new shirts, as well as some cups and a flask, which features and a the, clock and a clock. That's right, I forgot about the clock. Uh, and it says it's fantastic, but it also has Josh's smiling face on it. So, if you want a shirt with Josh's smiling face on it, and, and let's it, face it, who doesn't? Not me. You don't not. Uh, yeah, I've got like eight of these things but i bought them on the wrong size that's why i haven't been wearing them oh that's too bad but uh i'm gonna get to that small anyway uh <laughs> but yeah so if you want josh's face and a nonsense word on your chest then like Boy. a picture of his face not his actual face yeah although there is a donate button and if you you know it's it'll be its own little kickstarter reward <laughs> if you donate a thousand dollars we will fly Josh to your city, now, and he will put his face on your chest. Maybe we should slow this down. Men only. Come on, Josh is married. Yeah. What? I'm I'm gonna balk at this. Get on board. Are you my co-host or aren't, or aren't you? I guess not in this case. Oh, sorry. 
All right, I guess I'll just ta- I'll go solo with this one. Thanks all for right, coming see over, y'all Josh. later. I'm just if kidding. I had shoes on my hands, I would like make little walking sounds, like it's an old timey radio show. Like, well, I'm let's just away. let's just say you're barefoot. Go ahead. Okay. And oh, you, like you got that ring toe ring. Toes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's dumb. All right. It could be I'm on a horse. Now my ring's not that. What kind of horse is that? Uh, with one with two legs, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Moving on. All right. Uh, so, my fifth favorite movie of all time. Josh, are you ready to talk about it? It seems like it should be your 12th favorite movie of all time. I know. But, hey, you, you already set the, uh, a bad precedent with The Seventh Seal being your sixth favorite film of all time, when obviously it should have been The Sixth, the sixth Day with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. And I believe Tony Goldwyn. Mm-hmm. Is it Tony Goldwyn? Well, my fifth favorite movie is going to be The Fifth Element, so that's all right. Okay. I can't argue with that. Mm-hmm. Well, I can. But uh, did I, I think I already made the joke on another episode that my first favorite movie was going to be First Kid. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And then I proceeded to name a number of the actors in the film, <laughs> which you seemed surprised at. Yeah. And I was a little surprised myself, to be honest with you. Uh, okay. So my fifth favorite movie of all time was for many many years my third favorite but i recently moved my list around and this one got bumped by two different movies so uh but that doesn't mean i don't love it it is called 12 angry men and it came out in 1957 and basically it is about uh these 12 jurors yes they are men boy are they mad and they're a little upset and then sometimes that jumps to just flat-out anger mm-hmm. for all of them at some point. Uh, and so I f- so it's about 12 jurors uh, on, a, uh, on a case in which a, a young boy is accused of murdering his father. So <clears throat> he's not that young. He's like 18, I think. So, um, so when I first saw the film, this has the distinction of being one of maybe two or three movies that... Uh, when I was younger, it was not uncommon for me because, you know, I had, I was in high school and I was doing theater and all that. So I didn't have a great deal of time, but I would still find time to watch movies, but I would sometimes have to split them up. Uh, I would watch the first half one day and the second half the other day. Uh, and then every once in a while I would start a movie planning to watch maybe 45 minutes of it. And then the movie would just say, no, I'm sorry, you don't get to do that. You're going to watch this whole thing. (laughs) And 12 Angry Men was one of the first movies to do that, that just demanded my attention. Hmm. Um, Partially, it's it's entirely possible that because it's it's in real time, essentially. Hmm. Um, And so there's no real clear stopping point. And so, uh, but also just because it's just so intriguing. And it, it, it might seem as though, the case it's a courtroom drama that only two percent of it takes place in the actual courtroom yeah uh but you're able to put together everything that happened in the courtroom as these men discuss it that's one of the things that i think is so fascinating about it Mm -hmm. and the fact that uh not unlike a a play that came many years later uh american buffalo so in american buffalo there are only three characters there's Don, Teach, and Bobby. 
but they reg- regularly make reference to Grace and Ruthie and Fletch and Earl and these other these other characters and these people are so friendly with them that you almost feel like okay well who played Fletch oh right you never see him no one <laughs> plays him but he seems like a character hmm. just the way you and I right now would talk about you know uh, let's say Dan Langford. Dan, you'll enjoy hearing this. So, um, someone that people on the show, uh, people who listen to the show, they've never heard him. Mm-hmm. But if you and I were to talk to talk at length about him, people would get a sense of who he was. And that's what you get with 12 Angry Men and the case itself, but specifically everybody involved from the witnesses to the accused, to the victim, to the lawyers, and so the structure of it is so fascinating to me that the only time the only time you spend any the only time you spend in the courtroom is when the judge s- uh, says okay go and do you know go and get us a verdict she, he doesn't he doesn't put <laughs> go like and get us a verdict all right he's grown tired although oddly enough that is one of the interesting things is uh uh early on the judge when he is giving the jury its instructions you know, his, like his, uh, he's looking down his paperwork and he's just kind of mumbling and he could not seem more bored. Yeah. And so already you're starting with, so with his boredom in mind, and then you see the jurors talk about the case at first and it literally seems like an open and shut case. So open and shut the judge himself is bored. Yeah. And Josh himself is bored as well. He's yawning. I'm yawning. It's very late, and he spent all day on set. <laughs> so, um, so, so the structure is strange. The way it throws you into it is strange. Um, and there's just, and also, it's a, it's a chamber piece, which even now they don't do very often. No, they don't. And were there were there? And maybe this is something. There's no way we could know, but. Can you think, were there a lot of movies that, there weren't a lot, but were there many movies that had done this sort of thing before this film? Like many that took place in real time? Well, there's Rope. Yeah. But I think Um, Rope was later, wasn't it? I thought that was in the early 60s. uh, I don't remember. For some reason, I thought it was the early 50s, but I might be wrong on that. You can find Um, out. But but yes, you can can look into that. Um, Yeah, I don't really know if there are a lot of real time movies. Oh wow. I was wrong. Rope, rope, rope is uh, 1948, 48. Oh man. I, I was had no wrong idea too. it was that early. Wow. Um, I could have sworn it was like 53. Yeah, I know. But, okay. um, well that's one, but still there's not many like it, that. It was an unusual thing for movies at the time. And I guess kind of still is. Yeah. I can't, um, I mean, you know, there's that movie 88 minutes, which I didn't see and was apparently terrible. Yeah, it's bad. Oh, you saw it. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, it's okay. I got but, over it. <laughs> okay. Did you? Does anybody really get over no. seeing 88 minutes? I'm sorry, buddy. Um, but yeah, it's a very that's a very rare thing is is a chamber piece, and it means that, and there's no violence to speak of. Hmm. There's no action. There's no traditional suspense. Mm-hmm. It's characters talking, often arguing, admittedly, but. <clears throat> So every when you think about it, everything seems stacked against the film in a way. It's the drama, uh, the inherent drama in a courtroom, we are not allowed to see that. And just the the 
the relief that one can get when somebody goes to a different location. Mm-hmm. We don't get that either. We are stuck with these guys. And yeah. so, and the film is not boring. It is crackling with energy. And probably some of that could be attributed. Some of that, I'm going to go ahead and say all of that. Uh, it could be attributed to the director, Sidney Lumet. Mm-hmm whom people might have uh, might recall. He directed, I do not, I think it was my seventh or eighth favorite movie, I don't remember, uh, but he directed Network. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And uh, he's just, and this was his first uh, feature film. Really? Yeah. Uh, he'd done a lot of television okay. up to this point, but this was his first feature film. That's pretty good. Yeah. It's astounding, yeah. I would say. Um, <coughs> that, and, and, one wonders how is he able to make this as compelling as it is? Because I'll say this, uh, 40 years later, William Friedkin, who is no slouch as a director, he did, uh, the French connection and the exorcist and a number of other films, um, films with a real kinetic energy. He remade 12 angry men for HBO, which I watched and it's good there's still inherent power in that story and those characters. And he has a great cast, including Jack Lemmon, George C. Scott, James Gandalf, tons of people. Hmm. Um, but, and it's, so it's still interesting, but it almost seems like, well, how could this film not be as good as the original? And it's because of the choices made by the director, Sidney Lumet. One of the things that he does is it's a it's a camera choice that he makes, uh, and it is informed by the nature of the story he is telling. Um, I don't know if you if you know this, but basically, when the, the he breaks the film up into into thirds, the first third of the film, the camera is slightly above all of the actors. The second third, it is at eye level, and then the last third, it is below. Hmm looking at looking up at them and so uh so why did he do that and to 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 understand it you need to know that first off no juror is ever given a name except for two guys who exchange names at the end of the film when the case is over uh so they never give any names and so when you describe them you are describing aspects about their personalities and You'd be like, you might say, oh, or you might say the actor, but Mm. you'd say, oh, that's the guy who wanted to get to the baseball game. Mm. Oh, that's the logical guy who, who's a a broker. Oh, that's the really bigoted guy. (laughs) Oh, that's the old man. Oh, that's the, uh, that's the foreign watchmaker. Oh, that's the working man. Mm. Oh, that's the guy from the slum. Just that's how you describe them. Yeah. And in doing so, you immediately make, you immediately put them in a box that says, I know who this guy is. Hmm. There's, they're, they're easy to categorize. And so knowing that that's, that's how the story is going to be structured and that's who these characters are, by having the camera above these men, we are looking down on them. And when you look down on someone, you, do, you tend not to acknowledge their complexity. Um, not unlike uh, the uh, Ferris wheel in... Um, the third man, when he looks down and says, you know, look at all those people. They're basically, they're no bigger than ants. You know, if, if one of those ants were to stop moving, would you really care? Or would you start calculating how many, how many spec, how many of those specs you could spare? And so, um, 
so when you're looking down on these guys, albeit just a little bit, it's because you feel like you've got them figured out. And then you're at eye level and you realize, oh, these guys, as you start to find out more about them, oh, these guys, they're, they're like me, really, as far as their emotions. I thought I had them figured out, but they're really like me. And then that last part, you are looking up at them, all of them. Not merely the ones that are, that are more complex, because some of the guys are more complicated than others, but you're looking up at them, and they are often looking down at you. And in, in a way that is maybe a little judgmental of the, of the viewer, precisely because of that first third, that first act, when it's just like, you thought you could figure us out? Like, you, th- you have the audacity to come into this situation, hear a little bit about our lives, and you think you've got us all worked out. No, that's not how this works. Everybody comes into a room with tons of baggage, tons of life experience. You never know. What is that line from uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, Josh? Uh, you never really know a man until you've like walked around in his shoes for a little while or something yeah. like that. I can, I can never remember the exact wording. I believe it's it's not walked a mile. I remember it's like, yeah, wa- like it's walked like around in his shoes. put his shoes on and walked around in them for yeah. a bit or something. And it's that... And that's one of the things about the film is these characters, they keep, they also, along with the audience judging them, they are also judging each other constantly Mm -hmm. and saying, oh, you're just this, you're just that. And what it often comes down to is you don't agree with me, so I will look for a reason to dismiss you. And by the end, everyone seems to have a, even if they don't like each other, and even if they don't respect the conclusion that a person has come to, um they all acknowledge that something really big has happened here and they are all, it's almost like they've been to war and they feel a closer bond with these other guys, even the ones they don't like Mm. than, than they ever would have uh, otherwise. And just, and, and you yourself feel that as well. And you just feel so close to all of these people and you just, I don't know. I, I just want to like, get to know them. I want to follow any number of them home and just see their lives, but you don't get to, you get Mm -hmm. to see what the, what of their lives they brought into that room and that's it. Yeah. So, uh, so I've, I've spoken, I've been speaking quite a bit about it. Now, Josh, you've seen the film. I have, it has been a while though, since the last time I saw it. So I don't remember particularly much (laughs) about it, but to speak a little bit to what you were saying, I, I feel like, uh, I guess you kind of implied this, even if if you didn't say it directly. But um, that's that technique of putting us at first in a position where we tend to sum up these people in a certain way, whether that be just through the camera uh, work or by the way that they're introduced. Um, uh, the filmmaker sort of puts us in the same position as the jurors find themselves in having to make a judgment about the the accused as mm. uh, as IMDB calls <laughs> that character mm. um, but uh, but that's interesting because they they tend to do the same thing at the beginning kind of mm. say like well we know what this type of kid is like like we know you know he's a punk yeah this or that and kind of tend to sum him up in those those kind of generalities and then through the course of the film start to find out well there's more to it than that right and um and so that's that's an interesting detail of the movie that we kind of started to do the same thing about each of the jurors yeah and and uh 
Easy. Uh, there's, um, and I guess we can start talking about some of the characters themselves and, and some of the acting because the two are just intermingled, especially in a movie like this. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that always got me, uh, always kept me from, I mean, I loved the movie, but kept me from putting it in the number one or two spot, um, was, uh, the character of, um, juror number eight played by Henry Fonda, the hero of the story, basically. Um, <clears throat> I always thought that he was a little too perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and that all these other guys, they, they're all flawed in some way. Some of them are, are really just kind of normal people. Um, and their only flaw is not wanting to, not even not wanting, not, instinctively looking deeper or doubting their senses. Yeah, there's some of them who, like you said, while it's kind of a small flaw, just kind of want to get the thing over with. Yeah. And it's not that they... It's not that they want the kid to be guilty. It's not that they assume he's guilty. It's that they sat in that courtroom and they saw one piece of evidence after another mount up and it's just like, this looks pretty guilty to me. Mm -hmm. And as any number of us would probably do in their situation. We all want to believe that we'd be Henry Fonda, but chances are we would be, I'm going to say Martin Balsam, who's juror number one, who is a, he's a high school football coach and just a decent man, but he votes guilty just like everybody else. Um, in the, in basically in, at the beginning, 11 guys vote guilty and one guy doesn't not because, he thinks the kid is innocent, but because he's not a hundred percent sure. And he thinks at the very least we owe this, we owe it to this kid and to maybe just the legal system to just say a few things here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and sorry, everybody, I'm getting over a cold. So I'm, I'm, I'll be clearing my throat periodically. I apologize. Um, and so people get, some people get upset with him, whereas other people are, more willing to listen to him, maybe because he gives them the opportunity or gives them an excuse to think a little bit about it. Cause they are going to send the, if they vote guilty, then this kid goes to the chair. And so they're probably just going to do it. Like not that they're callous, but just it gives them an opportunity to give it, to give it a second look and do this and not do this quite so readily. Um, <clears throat> and it got me thinking just now, not before this that so there was a court case nationally that people knew a lot about i was thinking about that same thing actually i was going to bring it up a little bit later and i had this thought and i'm talking of course about the george zimmerman trayvon martin case but i remember thinking if i were one of the lawyers in in the case in 12 Angry Men, if I were one of those lawyers, or if I was one of the people, you know, in the gallery or whatever, people just watching, and then the jury comes out, and they say not guilty, and undoubtedly the judge and the crowd, they all heard the same evidence as everybody else. They probably would thought, this is open and shut. The jury comes back with not guilty, not even hung jury not guilty. I'm sure you got a lot of people that were up in arms over that. Mm-hmm. Now, admittedly it's a fictional case. Um, <clears throat> but that's the thing is they don't know what happened in that jury room. Yeah. And 
it reminded me of whatever your feelings are about the the Zimmerman case. Um, there certainly are a lot of people who just immediate, uh, immediately just said like, "Oh, this is a travesty," and this, you know, they cried race, racism on the part of the jury. Uh, on the part of just the uh, legal system in general, uh, there are a number of people who called for uh, for the jurors in the Trayvon Martin case to be killed and yes. raped, and uh, it's um, yeah, pretty pretty terrible. All because they assume they know what happened in that jury room. Yeah, you know, and that's the thing. And I've I've followed it a little bit enough to know that the jury came back out and asked hey we need a t- we need the legal definition of manslaughter like they were clearly putting thought into this mm-hmm. and so again whether you think they came to the right conclusion or wrong conclusion um there is a lot of opinion about what about what six what these six people saw and discussed and it did remind me a lot of 12 Angry men now mm-hmm you said you were going to bring it up. Were you going to bring up kind of what I just talked about, or did you have more to say? Um, more just like, I guess that was one of the things, but there's a lot of things to think about about this in relation to that, because that is a, uh, I don't know, a similar case where a lot of people were kind of assuming it would go a certain way, and then mm-hmm. it didn't, so... Um, it's funny. It's almost as if y- y- you could take this movie and depending on what trial you were to compare it to, if you put that in somebody's mind before they watch the movie, I'll bet they could be either in favor of what happens or against what happens. Oh, yeah. And um, that's one thing that I I never know exactly how I do feel or should feel about the movie is all you're hearing about is the discussion that goes on in the jury room. Like, you, we weren't there for the actual trial. Right. Um, so there could be details of it that they're glossing over or that Henry Fonda is has forgotten about or something right. like that. Like, there could be more to it in the actual case than there is in the jury room, but we only see the jury room. Like, what happens if, say, the postscript to that movie is that kid saying, yeah, I did it and I got away with it? Like, yeah. then... I don't know. <laughs> that's well, and that's as, as somebody who I, I'm fascinated by, and maybe it was this movie that did it. The fat I was fascinated at the notion of a guilty man going free mm. because of the reasonable doubt thing. Yeah, and it got me thinking that, like, <laughs> all right, which which I think I'll, I'll just say real okay, quick go before ahead, you go into it is what made me think of the Trayvon Martin thing because that. Yeah. It, it was this, a similar verdict where they were like, it may have happened, but there just isn't enough proof. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And that was the thing, like with the, the Trayvon Martin thing is that nobody's saying he didn't shoot and kill Trayvon right. Martin. They just said there was not enough to prove murder, which is a premeditated act. Mm-hmm. And again, you might agree with that or not, but they that they weren't saying well, he didn't do it. Someone else might have come along and did it. They, that's not what they're saying. They're mm-hmm. saying, like, he was saying it's self-defense, and there's we have no reason to doubt that at that point. So, um, but that's the thing is, I, I am fascinated at the notion of, an, of a guilty man going free as opposed to an innocent man going to prison. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know politically where this puts me, <laughs> but I am more in favor of, you know, I, I'd rather... I'd rather guilty people go free than 
an innocent person get thrown into jail or maybe even executed. Mm. Um, because I don't know, it just seems like a, 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 I don't know. It's all injustice, but the question is what is the greater injustice, you know? And that's the thing is they might be, you, you could watch this and say, Oh, the kid, there's no question. The kid did it, you know, but if he didn't, then this is exactly what you want to happen. You know, you hope you've got this jury, you know, mm-hmm. um, have you ever been on a jury? Mm-hmm. I've never even been to a jury selection process. I used mm-hmm. to get, I used to get it more kind of frequently when I was in back in North Carolina, but it was often after I had gone off to college. So mm-hmm. I'd be like, I can't, I just can't be there. Right. So, um, yeah. yeah, I, uh, I went to jury selection once I was almost on the jury and then, all right. Um, this might offend people. I'm putting this out there. Uh, and then, uh, the judge kept asking certain questions of people. And one of the things he said is at any point, if anybody thinks of a reason why they feel like they're not qualified to do this, or they say, they think of something they feel like we should know, then please do. So we went through everything and, uh, they kept asking about police officers. They kept asking about like, would you trust a police officer's testimony? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, no. <laughs> and not that I not that I dislike the police, and I have a great deal of respect for, for police officers, but I also know that I have a job to do, and I know that a... Okay, I'm not saying police officers are liars, <laughs> but I basically raised my hand and said, hey, uh, based on what the judge has said, which is anything that might be pertinent... I've been sitting here thinking and I don't think I ever really realized it until now because I haven't been, I haven't been forced to think about it. It was like, I don't think I like police officers that much. (laughs) Uh, I'm sorry to everybody. Like I apologize to the court. I'm like, I know that's a terrible thing to say and I regret having to say it, but I think it might actually be true because I've had some, I've had some run-ins with the law. Not like that. Mm. Just, uh, I, I've known, I won't go into the whole thing. But anyway, so I wound up getting dismissed because um, you can't badmouth police and and stay on the jury. So uh, if anybody uh, feels like getting uh, out of uh, jury duty, just say you hate cops. <laughs> so, But I think you do have to mean it. That's the other thing. If they get the impression you're lying. Um, but yeah, so it was, but I, I wound up, I was happy that I was off the jury because I had work to do, but I also kind of wanted to stay because this case sounded very interesting to me. Um, and it sounded open and shut. And I found myself being like, this seems open and shut. And yet this guy is still saying not guilty. I would love to hear the details of this case. Um, but I just, uh, you know, I've got that opinion, so I'm mm-hmm. not allowed to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the thing is I, so I'm, I, I, I love the I love the jury system. I think it's fascinating. Mm. Um, I think it's flawed because they are because you know it's just flawed, it's flawed people. Yeah, but it's people who ostensibly are doing their best. Yeah, and it is interesting that in the end, like those people make the decision. You know, like mm-hmm. it, it could be that even if even if the lawyers spend days and days and days fighting back and forth over this issue, that ultimately the jury is going to decide. So yeah. Yeah, and that's, I don't know, I, I find that comforting. And I, and I recognize that mistakes are made sometimes just because the evidence just 
winds up looking a certain way or whatever. But uh, I don't know. It's kind of exciting to me. I know that's weird, but but that's the thing is is uh, this film explores just the I don't know what you call it just the like the pressure cooker that is that this mm-hmm. like people they are there for a purpose they would never hang out otherwise. I mean, I compared it to war, and it is like that. Yeah. You know, they're put in a stressful situation on the hottest day of the year. Air yeah. conditioning's broken, so like all the also all the elements are there yeah. to make them angry. Yeah, you wouldn't like them when they're angry. Um, but yeah, and so so it, it's just a film that like really I feel like everybody should watch it because I think you come away from the film wiser about humanity and you're reluctant to generalize about somebody or marginalize somebody based on a few facts here and there that you might know about them. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I, I should talk a little bit about some of the, about the rest of the cast. The whole cast is pretty solid, but, uh, to me, I mean, obviously there are certain characters that play a, a more of a key role than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lee J Cobb, who plays juror number three, who is, for lack of a better term, the villain of the piece, uh, or at least the antagonist. He's the guy, he's the last one to, yeah. to say not guilty. And it's for entirely personal reasons. It has to do, he's, he's projecting st- stuff about his own son onto this kid. Um, and he's just, and it, early on, he actually seems like a pretty reasonable guy. And he, and he probably is a reasonable guy. And he's, but he's temperamental and he's excitable. Um, and he just, uh, but as time goes on, you realize like, man, he's really digging in his heels. Like (laughs) he's supposed to be objective about this. What is going on here? And then, then it, it comes out. And also they reveal things about his son throughout the movie at a time. And they seem innocuous, but then at the end you realize, oh, this all added up to something. And it's just, Mm. and, and it's Lee J Cobb who I think is a really great actor. Um, you might know him from on the waterfront or the brothers Karamazov film or the exorcist. Um, I was trying to look for films that I remember him from and it must be, uh, the first one you said on the waterfront. Yeah. Yeah. He's been in a number of other things. He was also, he, let's see. I don't think he was the first guy to play Willie Loman, but he was in a very successful theatrical run of uh, death of a salesman. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think he does a really great job because, I mean, everything hinges on him at the end, and he has to have a total breakdown in front yeah. of these guys, and it needs to be believable. Because when's the last time in life you had a breakdown in front of a bunch of strangers? Yeah, seriously. Like, he has to sell that such a thing is possible. Yeah. And he does. Um, I do like Henry Fonda in that part. And what I was going to say, but I got sidetracked, is that the character does seem flawless, but there is one moment, not even one moment, there's a couple moments here and there where the character seems a little smug. Mm-hmm. And I think that is on purpose. I think once things start to swing his way, because he seems very humble early on, but things once things start to swing his way, he starts to get a little bit more confident. And a little bit more humble, uh, not humble, a little bit more smug. And he gets mad with power. Sure, let's put it that (laughs) way. One could say he gets angry with power. Hey. Um, But 
And I feel like that's... And that's something that has only come about after watching the film many, many times, is you realize there is a definite change that the character undergoes. And though he is on the side of right, and though he is still a pretty good guy, you do see these little flashes of, yeah, that's right. Now they're on my side. You know, and you see a, you see a weird parallel between Lee J. Cobb at the beginning of the movie and... Um, and Henry Fonda at the end, where both of them speak from a place of confidence, knowing that that the majority is on their side, yeah, and that empo- and that emboldens and empowers them. Um, so, and I so I think that's totally a function of Henry Fonda, and I think I sir, and that's what causes me to think that the character is flawed. He's not perfect. He's he and he he's principled, and he's standing up for what is right, and that makes him the protagonist what that's what makes him the good guy but uh but yeah i think fonda was interested in bringing some more complexity to that mm. um ed begley plays your number 10 otherwise known as the bigot he's uh and he's a fascinating guy too because he's just it, it's weird he has all the excitable qualities of lee jacob but you also realize that they're kind of you're not sure where they come from immediately and then you're uh, and he's and he talks about those people and you're not totally sure who he's talking about um the kid does look vaguely ethnic so you're not Mm -hmm. sure what ethnicity the kid could be hispanic the kid could be jewish or the kid quite frankly could just be poor yeah um and doesn't really matter whoever those people are it's like oh this guy just assumes this kid is guilty based on whatever yeah um and he also has to have a a big moment Mm -hmm. at the end and uh, and it's really interesting because that moment seems like it should be bigger and more satisfying from his point of view. Um, it's a very it's a very dramatic moment in film history, I think, where basically he's he's as he says he's speaking his piece, and slowly but surely every guy turns their back on him, showing that we're not listening. You're not saying anything, and so we're not listening. And while I am of the opinion that we should try to listen to everybody and hear them out. Sometimes when somebody's just spewing hate and just unbridled hate, and admittedly that is a term that is open to interpretation, but, um, but it's a very dramatic scene and his, and the idea of this character speaking his piece, it seems like it should be this big bloviating thing and really dramatic, but it's actually kind of pathetic and it actually even, it starts pathetic Mm. and then it just, dwindles and just becomes sad yeah um and you wind up oddly enough you wind up feeling kind of bad for the character uh, or at least i did i don't know but um but yeah and so all the look all the actors are great i'm a big fan of jack warden i think eg marshall does a great job everyone does a good job i don't mean to single out just a few people but um but yeah those are the guys that i that i really responded to um, An interesting little trivia question for you. Okay, here, here I told we go. You I was going to do a trivia question. Which uh, which one of those actors was the last one to die? I think I knew that. Is it John Fiedler? I think no, but you're close. No. Shoot. Is it Jack Klugman? Jack Klugman. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Of TV's Quincy Emmy. <laughs> well done. <laughs> you purposely picked the lesser known one, right? Yeah, I did. Okay. Although a lot of people know Quincy. Hey. 
it is a Some constant punchline on Never Not Funny. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's just a weird concept for a show. But hey, did was, you ever? Did you watch Quincy? I didn't watch it, but okay. I think I've seen parts of okay. some of it. Like, I remember when it used to come on TV Land or something like that. And I was like, isn't that... So the guy from The Odd Couple went off and became a doctor, and he solves crimes now or something like that. The Odd Doctor is what they call it. The Odd Doctor. Yeah. The, the only thing that I know about it is that, you know, he's a medical examiner, so he, like, examines corpses and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then he determines if it's murder. Apparently, he says murder like that. <laughs> Um, but again, this is based entirely on what comedians have said about the show. Uh, but apparently the common theme is that he declares it murder. And then the other cops have to be like, I don't know about that. And maybe after like, let's say six episodes implying, of course, that, uh, he's been a, an ME for much longer, but we've just seen six episodes of it. Right. They're like, how about around episode number seven, you get an exchange where it's just, it's like, he says it's murder. I don't think so. But you know what? He's been right in the past. Let's get, let's give him the benefit of the doubt here. Okay, Quincy, we'll go with you. Every time they're just like, Quincy, that's ridiculous. You can't be right yet again. <laughs> Statistically, come on now. But it was murder. <clears throat> and it's what all of those shows where it's like somebody other than the cops or detectives fig, excuse me, figures out that it's a murder. Mm-hmm. It's like, how often can that possibly ever happen in any given oh, yeah. uh, city, I believe- city's police industry? You know, like even even Monk, which is one that people enjoy. Yeah. But like, can these cops not do anything on their own? Like, he's got to come in oh, yeah. for hundreds of cases. They have to bring a guy who's just an obsessive compulsive guy, pretty much. But perhaps, let me let, let me suggest this. Okay. Perhaps there are thousands of cases, and they only bring him in. For, they're not going to show you a case that he's not a part of. It's called Monk. Well, that That's true. But even then, like, if the show went on for one season, I'll buy it. Yeah. But when it goes on for, like, ten seasons or however long, it's like, there's it's, it's impossible that they have to bring this guy in that often. Yeah, it's any of these ones. Quincy, uh, what's what's the one? Psych is another one. Oh, okay, I actually, I don't know what that show's like. I know that they use a psych. You know what? Actually, that one. Are you thinking of the Mentalist? I, well, that's another example. I think <laughs> Psych might be like there's something else behind it. Like he's not really a psychic. I don't remember. I haven't seen the show. Yeah, CSI. We are way off topic. Yeah, we are. Um, CSI is like that as well, where it's just oh, these crime scene investigators—they solve everything. Yeah, and uh, it's like I'm pretty sure the CSI guys would not be the first ones in the door when they're go to when they go to get the perp. I'm pretty sure they're yeah, pretty sure they're stuck back at the office. There's a lot of those ones that have the procedural thing where there's just there's a few things they're like. I guess I'm just gonna have to put up with that. Like this isn't even a procedural, but I've been enjoying Fringe a lot recently. But part of the whole concept of Fringe is there are these, and I, I won't spoil anything about it but this division that investigates strange happenings well they get called in a lot of the times for these things that are like on the surface this is not a strange happening it's just mm-hmm. somebody is dead and, and sometimes it is on the surface obvious yeah. but sometimes it's kind of a stretch to be like they're going to call up the people that are that are that you know investigate stuff that we can't figure out how to explain like it's just a guy fell down an elevator shaft or something like that it's like I don't know. I think I'd, I think that one might slip through the cracks. See, it's it's. Uh, I started watching Fringe earlier, and, uh, like recently, and I'm early enough in the uh, series that they're still exam uh, investigating actual 
weird things. Right. And and I'd say through that show, most of them are. But every now and then there's an episode where you're like, yeah, you're reaching. Yeah. It's all part of the pattern, Josh. <laughs> um, it's called the pattern. What was that? I don't know. Who, who, what character is that? Philip Broyles. Oh, okay. Um, so, uh, you got to watch The Wire. Is he in that? He's in it. He's, he's good. Yeah. Uh, okay. Back to business. So, um, so yeah, I don't have much else to say about 12 Angry Men. I mean, I, hopefully my, my love of the film has come through already. Just talking about some of the themes that it explores and the way it explores them. That's, that's one of the things I'll, I'll end with this unless you have anything else that you want to say after, uh, after I'm done. But, um, so the movies that I tend to like tend to be character driven, um, there doesn't necessarily have to be a clear, obvious story. There's no real story to 12 Angry Men, um, although there are, you know, beats and stuff like that. Um, and so, uh, and I have said in the past that a film, is, if it has, you know, really strong characters that are played well and there's strong dialogue and I'm engaged, um, that it doesn't have to be shot remarkably well. As long as it's adequate, as long as it's technically adequate, that's kind of enough for me. Um, but I will say this. If that happens, the film is likely not going to wind up in my top 100, much less my top 10, much less my top 5. Um, there's something to be said for bringing filmmaking technique to everything, even mm-hmm. something that would not appear to need it. Yeah, That's the difference between the William Friedkin remake and this one he he shoots it straightforward eye level he doesn't do anything with the camera and it's just an interesting movie and in which it's all about the characters this is all about the characters but it's kind of but you are also kind of one of the characters and it's Mm -hmm. putting you in their position constantly through editing and cinematography and that sort of thing it's a it's it is in many ways exactly what a movie should be no matter, just a, a a perfect blending of style and substance. So, got anything to add to that? Uh, check out Quincy Me and the and the Clug Man. I will say this: his name being Jack Klugman, like it that's just, a great name. It's yeah. <laughs> It's so weird because when I think of, like, it's Jack Klugman, that's the man you get to play Oscar Madison. There's no question <laughs> about it. But he play, but to see him young. That is, because uh, I knew him from The Odd Couple before yeah. I saw this film. And they were like, it's Oscar. And it's like, well, yeah. he's he's younger. And then he's he's a little, he's not as bombastic as a char- of a character either. Not he's, at all. He's, he's kind he's of soft spoken. Uh, he's thin. Yeah. And he's got kind of a high, kind of a light voice, kind of a, not a high voice, but uh, well, just a soft voice. He's. Deferent is that the word I'm thinking of? Oh, I don't know. Is it? What are you trying to say? I don't know. Okay. Sometimes I just say big words and then I like wait a second to see if anybody noticed and then I just keep going. I mean, I noticed. Yeah, but I'm not sure exactly what you're trying. That is a word. Well, you brought it up, and now now we're in this awkward place where we have to figure out whether it's real or not. And the show's just about to end. Normally, people just just assume that I know what I'm talking about. Hmm. Those are the times that... No, I'm like, sorry. This is the world of podcasting. Nobody assumes you know what you're talking about. <laughs> but... Um, I assume that they're they're assuming I know what, I talk, what I'm talking about, and that's why they're, like, laughing at me when I'm not looking, or, like, whispering. Right, yes. And I'm like, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, mm, don't worry about it. Yeah. We're all whispering, see that guy? 
he knows what he's talking they're about. whispering about how i i know what's going on i'm on top of everything exactly yes as people will often do yeah um all right moving on from there uh i will say that yeah if you haven't seen it please do uh it's a really marvelous film and now that i've been t- invariably anytime i talk about one of the movies on my top 10 part he's like why is this not higher because my number because f- this got bumped it, it got bumped back when nashville became my number one but then it also got bumped back by uh night of the hunter which became became my number four and part of me's like ah i don't know but i'm sure once we get to night of the hunter i'm like oh no i i get it yeah so all right uh so i think we'll we'll end there um I'll let everybody know that a week from today, there will be a new episode in which Josh and I will be talking about the film, excuse me, the film Eat, Pray, Love. Starring You're Ju- welcome. Yeah, starring Julia Roberts. Uh, d- will we like it? Will we not like it? Who's to say? But I'll bet you can, I'll bet you can uh, make some pretty solid bets on that one. Neither of us have seen the film yet. So exactly. It'll be, we should make like predictions about it now and then see if those come through. This will be fun. This is absolutely what we are going to do right now. Do what? Uh, let's go three predictions each. Three predictions. Okay. okay. All right. What's your first prediction? Okay. My first prediction is that uh, I, I'm I'm going to say Julia Roberts has a scene where she dances in the rain. Okay. All right. Not a bad prediction. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. My prediction, see, all, that's a very specific prediction. All mine, I, like I predict, I will hit my fist against the couch as I watch it. Uh, but that's, mm. I'm not going to do that. Um, I predict that via another Julia Roberts film called Aaron Brockovich, I predict that the other characters will act as though they have read the script, recognize she is the main character, and will let her get away with a number of things that. Uh, that will ring false. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've each got one. What do you got? Hmm. I'm gonna say, how many times do I think that there will be a line that I want to physically groan at? I'm gonna say five. Okay. All right. Um, that's kids are all right levels right there. <laughs> yeah. See like that. It will sound like that. Um, okay. I don't know if it'll be like kids, like the kids are all right was in that there was a moment when I literally wanted to turn to you guys watching with me and say, can we stop watching this? Yeah. <laughs> that happened. Remember, remember the movie stopped for some reason we had to pause it. Yeah. And I was like, is it, is the whole thing? Do we have to keep watching this? I don't want to see the rest of this. <laughs> Astounds me that, Okay, anyway. Um, All right, so let's see. My next prediction. Oh, this is fun for us. Um, And also maybe a little mean, but you never know. Hey, if this movie's great, I will tell you. Oh, yeah. I'll be the first one to say my predictions were wrong. Yeah. But I am going to, since this is more than one lesson, it's a Christian show, I will go so far as to say that... any kind of Christian theology will be readily uh, mocked or at the very least instantly rejected in favor of something more exotic, which is to say Eastern. Hmm. Yeah, that's a pretty good one. 
Um, I'm going to say that I will come away from it feeling like the character has not actually learned anything. Hmm. Like it, it will, it will give the appearance of I'm somebody who has learned how to, you know, balance their life or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it'll really just be somebody who just went off and did whatever they wanted to do. And it's presented in a heroic kind of way. Okay. I will. There's there's a little bit of backstory to this. Uh, I once read Tuesdays with Maury in a class in school, a sociology class called Death and Dying, which explores uh, both of those so, from a social point of view. And uh, so I read Tuesdays with Maury. You ever read it? I have not. Okay. Nor have um, I seen the film. Okay. I uh, I wrote I read it and wrote a paper on it, and then when it came time to turn it in, I start I felt a pang of guilt. And I went to my instructor and I said, okay, we're supposed to turn these in. You can see I have mine right here in my hand. I can give it to you right now, or you can give me a couple of days. I will rewrite it and I will give it to you then. He goes, why do you want to rewrite it? I was like, well, I did not care for the book, but I've, this is a very, this is maybe the, I believe this was the last class I took in school. And I was like, I've been doing, I've been writing film stuff for three years, for three years now. And I think I approached this as though it were a movie that I didn't like. And I wind up being maybe overly mocking of it, failing to recognize that this is the memoir of a person that really lived. And he's talking about somebody else that really lived. And my teacher, to his credit, because he was the one who assigned it, he finds, he found the book to be, you know, transcendent um and uh to his credit he's like are these your honest reactions i said yeah he's like then give it here it's fine and so uh, which was really awesome i liked him a lot um but uh but yeah so i gave uh but in so in the spirit of that uh i predict and kind of linking this to my previous prediction i predict that whatever philosophy is in the film will be so um oh what do you say it will it will be so shallow that it will wind up being insulting to whatever religion or whatever philosophy that she runs across anybody who genuinely believes that uh is pro- would probably be insulted by how this film presents it and it will present it in such a way as I will now crib a line from my paper on Tuesdays with Maury in uh, 2004. Uh, I predict that a lot of the deep life-changing philosophy that she hears will sound like it came out of a Hallmark card. That is my prediction. All right. So, all right. There we go. Will those predictions be true? Only one way to find out. Tune in next week. Same more than one lesson time. Same Same Josh channel. What? I said same bat channel. Yeah, it's the it is a bat channel, though it is a more than one lesson time. Right. That should be how we start. Hey, everybody, it's more than one lesson time. Oh. Although that people have complained that this does sound a little too that with the title and the chalkboard motif that uh, this does sound a little too uh, sounds teachy. Yeah, we should like, give homework then. Oh. Lean, lean into it, everybody. 
<laughs> here's your assignment. You're going to go watch Eat, Pray, Love. <laughs> and now everybody goes, oh, and then they're thinking of me as that kid, yeah, kid who's like, but we didn't take our quiz yet. He's usually was George Takei in your in your class. <laughs> the way I said that, somehow that sounded like a like a wizard hawk hawking uh, breakfast cereals. Didn't oh, it? no question. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You sounded like Relupo, the guy who uh, who told kids to eat fruit roll ups. Yeah, I know his name. Okay, so this mini sode is as long as a regular episode. So, all right, how long is it? Uh, it is at the moment about fifty six minutes. Wow! So nothing mini about this mini sode. Yeah, I'm glad we talked about Quincy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all right. Uh, well, thanks everybody for listening uh, this far. Uh, and uh, Josh, thanks for being here. You're welcome. And we'll get you next time. Bye. <laughs>